Hey, here we go. We're live. Looks like we are live everywhere. Facebook, Sermonio, and our own website. So I got a thumb. Okay, so we're off and running. I need to start out by saying a couple of things. I have been in the hospital recently twice, and it's because we don't know really what it is exactly. I haven't been diagnosed effectively. It's either a uh, heliocobacter pylori infection, or it could be a number of other things. But that seems to be the one with the most mathematics. So I have a bacteriological infection in my stomach, and it's caused me all kinds of difficulty. The only thing that saw that stopped the pain for me in the hospital was morphine, and obviously that can't continue. So I'm just dealing with it today. I hope I can do this. May have a little bit of a problem. I don't. I hope not, but we'll see how it goes. Okay, I, I should say really fast. Uh, uh, I have a tie, a new tie. Let me show my tie. There's my tie, and it came with with instructions apparently actually a description it's called a Mandelbrot fractal tie so that's really cool that uh-huh. uh, came from Luke from Ohio Luke I appreciate it he's hilarious and this now it goes with my Schrodinger tie and my Diet Coke tie so every time I do something completely crazy people send me a tie <laughs> so how about that okay here we go May the 7th uh 2023 lecture discussion number 197 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and Genesis 15. Really quickly, uh, this is going to be introductory. There's a lot of material today, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to make sure I could get it done today. But it's going to be introductory uh, in the sense that I have a long way to go in this particular topic. In any event, as we're closing in on lecture number 200 on the book of Joel, it's become conventional for me to hear this muttering and this whispering that people are asking, how can the HTRP have 200 lectures on a three-chapter Old Testament book of prophecy? I get that all the time. By now, I hope it's beyond obvious that 1 Corinthians 13.10 comes into play here. But when that which is the complete perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And the complete perfect did come. That is our Bible. That is in its original form. That is the Word of God. And when the when the complete perfect, notice I'm saying complete perfect, much to the delight of Kurt Gudel. But it absolutely is complete in many translations. And I, I think that's absolutely the right one to, to pick. So I just combine them both. The complete per- perfect did come. And, in, and the in part that shall vanish away has happened. That's happened. That which was in part has vanished away. Those identified as in part are in the scriptures, the prophecies, the languages. That's the Acts 2, uh, 6 through 8 miracle of everyone hearing in his own language. That passed, that passed away. It's gone. Because the perfect has come. So everyone heard in their own language when somebody spoke a completely different language. That's the miracle of, of the languages in Acts 2. And all of that, the knowledge, uh, the, the prophecies, that all has vanished. They are replaced by what's now the complete perfect. And so relying on the capabilities of humanity has ended. It is, again, it has vanished. And the Bible is very clear about that. The key word in 1 Corinthians 13.10, in my humbleness, this, this, this. How I many this is, this is, this is, this, what is that? Again, is this word complete? Complete is synonymous with infinite. With infinite. 
which is why the book of Joel requires 200 lectures just to get started. You're dealing with an infinite book here. So if I stop at 200, I'm, I'm just, I haven't scratched the surface. And for most of our recent purposes, which has been the tar baby that is this debate regarding ruthless, extreme Calvinistic predestination and its counterpart, the anemic, debilitated Arminianism, both are seriously flawed concepts. Neither is doctrinally sound, yet the adherents of each of those are convinced. It's very difficult to not con- to get them unconvinced. It doesn't matter. Evidence doesn't matter. It's how they feel. And so it's a very difficult challenge. And they're, as I said, they're convinced to the point of rabidity, and, and, and that's always a condition of extremist positions. Anyway, Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13 are, as you know, in the midst of all of this, if not the most powerful refutation of predestination of individual salvation. Also, Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13 are equally resolute against the Arminian teaching that salvation is fragile. Uh, The Arminian position says it's not only fragile, it's subject to forfeiture and and irretrievability. 2 Kings 6, 1 through 7 is another scripture that destroys Arminian precepts. I hope that's one of Dave's favorites because that's the floating axe head. That's the borrowed precious axe head that sinks to the bottom of the Jordan River. Jordan. Death, judgment, death and judgment flows from Adam into the sea of death. Judgment, Joshua 3.16. So I got that man, I've said this, I've used this chapter many, many times. He loses a borrowed axe head and he cries out in despair. And he cries out, alas, master. And the man of God, which is Elisha. Am I doing something that you need me to correct? No. Okay. The man of God cuts off a branch, Daniel 9.26, Isaiah 11.1. Jesus Christ is the branch and the rod, Zechariah 6.12. Jesus Christ is the budded rod of Aaron that is alive, Numbers 17.8. The rod that yielded ripe almonds, the rod that consumed evil, Exodus 7.13, Matthew 26.39. All of that plays into that accent. Notice that Joel 2.32 says definitively, Whosoever cries out, this man lost his axe head and he cried out to the man of God. Whosoever cries out, Joel 2.32, the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. Will be saved. Not might be saved. It's never might be saved. It's always will be saved. It's never may be saved. The soul is saved. I'm sorry. We have an Egypt error on the CD. Okay, so we lost the CD. We lost the CD. But we've got this as a backup. Okay, so we'll just manufacture. Okay, we'll manufacture again. The point is, yea, a point. The Arminian uh, proposition is a whole lot of maybe saved dubiosity, shakiness, insecurity. That's what it is. There's nothing in Scripture that, that backs that up. Nothing. The opposite is true. Ultimately, this is insulting the character of God, proclaiming Him to be untrustworthy. Huh. Untrustworthy. Barely got that word out. It says it says that God is deceitful, that He's unreliable, and He's He's the opposite of that. And Second Kings six one through seven reveals that. So might I suggest the verses that describe the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty? They describe Him as the Rock. 
He's the rock, Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 4, Matthew 21, 42, Isaiah 28, 16. He who believes in the stone of Zion, the tested stone, the precious stone will not be disturbed. So if you have the rock, if you're clinging to the rock, actually the rock is clinging to you. You will not be disturbed. What's that mean? Can you lose your salvation? No, you're depending on the rock, the stone, the tested stone. Will You will not be disturbed. Daniel 2, Daniel 2.34, 1 Corinthians 10.4. Hey, here's a little side note here since I'm ranting on this, trying to get all this stuff lined up for today. There's no such thing as threshold salvation. It just doesn't happen. Again, that's, Schofield got that wrong. There is no easy believism. Ryrie was correct about that. He knocked that out of the park. Why is there no easy believism? You'll hear it all the time. Oh, you've got easy believism. You're a threshold Christian. You're not really saved. You haven't gotten through the door. You haven't, you, the rock didn't hold you. They say it all the time. Why do they do that? They do that because they want control. They want to be the arbiters, the gatekeepers of who's saved and who's not saved. That is not something that humanity should ever be involved in. So, again, I always answer, why is there no easy believism? Just a simple question. Ask how much power is needed to forgive sin. How much power is needed to forgive sin and save somebody? How much power is required? For which, it's, which is easier to save, Jesus Christ said. Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk, Matthew 9, 5. Which one's the hardest? Obviously, forgiving sin, he's, the implication is overwhelming. So, I answered the question, which is easier? Which requires more power? Obviously, again, God himself resolved this easy believism question in Matthew 9, 5. Forgiving sin requires the power of God, the omnipotence of God, the sacrifice of Christ. So quit with this easy believism cliche. Quit accusing people of it. It's destructive. It's wrong. By doing that, you assign yourself into a position that insults the power of God to forgive sin. You say, well, it's easy for him to forgive sin. It's not easy for him to forgive sin. It's a discredit to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ ultimately. Will my will that analysis that I just give you initiate a bombardment of angry uh, responses? Probably, yes, it always does. Do I care? Cinco de Stevo was Friday. That's why I have a tie. Okay, I'm 70. There's a couple of times in the hospital I thought, oh no, I'm not going to make it to 70. So do the math. I'm 70. My days caring about other people's angriness are rapidly coming to an abrupt ending. I'm going to hand out quarters. Here's a quarter. (laughs) I'm not going to get involved in these fights anymore. Okay, we left off last lecture with Job 1, 6 through 12. This, what I'm going to do today is just scratching the surface of what I'm going to say. And it's amazing. Job 1, 6 through 12. Job 2 as well. And this is the supposed hedge that Satan proffered before the gathering, the convening, this congregation of the entire angelic realm. I got the fallen angels. I have the faithful angels. And the first question you always ask when you see this in Job is why are they all in the same place? They've all gathered together. 
What did they do? Send out invitations? How? Why did they gather together? What was it? Was it a possibility they were going to go to war? Because that happens in Revelation 12. Why do you gather both sides like this in this kind of confrontation? Start thinking about that. Anyway, Satan the liar, Satan the murderer from the beginning, he comes and he accuses God of, of placing a protective hedge around Job. That's what he does. And Satan asks two questions of God, of God Job 1.9, Job 1.10. Both questions are within his response to God's questions to him at Job 1.7, Job 1.8. So I got God asking two questions and I got Satan responding with two questions. So we have a question fight. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? This is the omniscient God asks a question. How many times have I said in my so-called career when God asks a question, it isn't because he wants to know the answer. He knows the answer. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. From where do you come? He said to Satan. Now Satan answers. And again, the liar and the murderer has likely figured out that God is going to ask him questions by now, don't you think? So he probably anticipated God's question. He always keep in mind that there is an audience of millions and millions, many millions here. So this is something special. And they're all listening. In Psalm 68, 17, Hebrews 12, 22, Deuteronomy 32, 2, tells you that they're uncountable. The numbers are uncountable. The Hebrew word translated thousands and thousands conveys the meaning of an uncountable number. Revelation 5.11 There's no Hebrew for, for infinite. The Aleph Tav is the only thing. They don't have numbers. They don't have billions and trillions of numbers. We don't know how many are there, but they're all there. When reading Job 1, 6 through 12, take care to imagine the immensity of this conversation, the enormity of it, and then ask why. Ask what? Job 1, 4 is equally mysterious. It says this. Now, there was a day. What's the day? There was a day when this happened. So what's the easy question here? What happened on this day before? What day is it? Why this day? What else happened on this day? Why is there a day that came where the uncountable angelic hosts gathered, both faithful and fallen? They all gathered. A day came. Again, now there was a day when this happened. What could have caused this? Again, is there, are they going to war? Why didn't they go to war? Where in the Bible can we find an event that is traceable to the cause of this gravity, this paramountcy? can barely say that word without drinking water. I got something that is paramount here. Where else in the Bible do I have this? I should be able to find some place in the Bible that this is happening. So... I got faithful angels, I got fallen angels, billions and billions of them face to face. I have got God and Satan asking questions of each other. Who selected the day? What anniversary would be this day? All in attendance, I believe. Every single agent, agent, every single angel knew why this day was the day that they were there. So we need to figure that out, in my view. Why this day? It's the why this day question. The angels know. They know. So we should know what they know. Logically, it's my view that Satan came prepared. Duh. He's prepared. 
he would know that omniscient God would ask questions. He's full of the brim with wisdom, Ezekiel 28:12. Of all of the audience, Satan would know why this day. If anybody knew why this day, he would know. So what's your decision? What have you decided? What, what day is this? What does this day mark? It marks something. It's not just arbitrary. God doesn't do anything arbitrary. Remember, he's complete. He has all of the variabilities. He's infinite. So, have you decided on the day yet? Have you found another scripture that describes something equal to Job 1.6? Have you done that yet? By you, I mean you. Notice that Satan's answer to God's first question, and, and I don't have time to read it, so I hope that you've looked at it and read it and paused it because of the, tech, or the video here and got up to speed that way. Notice that Satan's answer to God's first question is a reference to Ezekiel 28.12-19. So Satan answers God's question with Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28.12-19 and Job 1.6-12 are therefore now tied together because Satan tied them together. So that's giving you a clue as to what day this is. It reminds me of the camel going through. What day is it? Okay, that's what we're doing here. Satan says, I have come from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. That's Ezekiel 28. What kind of answer is that? At first it seemed like Satan said, I went for a walk. Well, he didn't. Yeah, that's too simple of a... Of a, of a how do I put it? You, you think that's the solution. Oh, he just went for a walk. He's walking around, doesn't know what he's doing. He does not think that way. Satan thinks here. We think way, way below Satan. Obviously, Satan has answered God's first question with a statement that is complicated as well as relevant to the day that this all happened. Ezekiel 28.14 God said to Satan on the day he was found to have sin in him, you were the anointed cherub, the highest of all the cherubim, the highest. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God, God said to Satan. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Again, back to what Satan said here, Job 1, 6 through 12. I have come from going to and fro and from walking back and forth on it. He had literally quotes exactly what God said in Ezekiel 28. So now we know. Okay. We've got to start now. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Oh, there's that wonderful word, day. So is this the day that Satan was created? That we have this gathering of billions of angels fallen and unfallen. And Job in the middle of it. Is that the day? Until iniquity, until sin was found in you, by the abundance of your traffic, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. So which day have you chosen now? The day he was anointed? The day of the creation of Satan, if you want to think of it that way. The day that Satan walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Or curtain number three, the day that Satan was cast out as a profane thing. Obviously, a critical aspect of Satan's assignment is to walk back and forth in the fiery stones. Why? 
because that's one of part that's part of his job. You go walk back and forth through the fiery stones. Why? That seems to be a crucial element. I'm going to tell you right now that it, it attaches to something very interesting. Oh, I'll give it up. Free will. His walking in the fiery stones demonstrates free will. Now, how is that? We will see. Again, I'm introducing this today. I got a long way to go. I hope I make it. So, what? Do, in other words, what does this really mean? You think if you're thinking, oh, he's just walking back and forth, that's not what he's doing. Start thinking like this. Give up the simple. And the fact that he uses this with Job, he says this, he repeats it, God's words in Job 1, 6 through 12 is incredibly important. Okay. Now, some of you might go contrarian here and select Genesis 3, 4, 7, the day of the fall of Adam and the woman. And I see that view a lot. Chronologically, it doesn't work. The Genesis 3, 4 through 7 position is facing difficulty because the Eden of Ezekiel 28, 13 is not the Eden of Genesis 2, 8. They're not two separate Places They may be in the same geological, geophysical location, but they are two different Edens. Genesis 28.13 describes a mineral Eden. Genesis 2.8, an organic Eden. They're not the same. Now again, they might be in the same location on the earth, but they're different. Logically, a mineral Eden is inconsistent with physical organic uh, beings, but satisfactory for a spiritual being. I've long argued that the mineral Eden is the first Eden and the organic Eden is the replacement or the second Eden. Why was a second Eden necessary? Obviously because of the organic element and because of the multiplication element. Man can multiply, angels cannot. So that figures in here. But I'm going to say again, it's because of free will. Walking back and forth amongst the fiery stones is a free will statement. Having a second Eden that is organic is a free will statement. How's that all resolved? You hope I'm going to answer that. I hope I will. I must be fair, however, and point out, yea, a point out. And mention that the Genesis 3, 4 through 7 position is the most accepted and taught by the acceptors and the commentators here. They think that the day that we're, that we're talking about is the day the woman fell. I don't think that's it. I respectively, okay, not so much respectively, disagree with that. I think there are only three questions, not four questions. Or three answers, not four answers, whichever you prefer. And it's apparent that Satan repeats Ezekiel 28.14 and Job 1.7. I can't, I can't get off of that. It's too critical of a piece of information. An intellect of Satan's level would not do that accidentally. He did it on purpose. And every angel that listened to that knew about the fiery stones. They knew the significance of the fiery stones and why Satan walks back and forth in the fiery stone. They got it. We're talking about the fiery stones and the meanings of the fiery stones. Does anybody listening to me raise your hands, never raise your hand here? Do you have any idea the significance of the fiery stones? Probably not. We're going to change that. Maybe not today. Sorry, not really fake sorry. (laughs) Start thinking about it. The fiery stones are crucial here. Crucial. Matthew 4, 8 and Luke 4, 5 come into this discussion as well. And they, they present the Job-Christ uh, connection. And that's something that we have to investigate that, which means the Adam-Job relationship also is relevant 
Romans 5.14, 1 Corinthians 15.45-49. Remember, Job is described by God himself, the none like Job on earth. I'll get back to that in a minute. Well, maybe an hour. But I'll get back to it. It's in the, in the text. I know where it is. It's on one of these pages. But just think about that. God describes Job as none like Job on the earth. None. Okay, where am I? Did Satan tell the truth? No. Does he ever tell the truth? No. Please don't ever think that Satan says something that's true. He never does. He doesn't do it. He's so good at this, he never makes that mistake. He's incredibly consistent. Did Satan come from walking to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on the fiery stone? Did, did he tell the truth when he said, I was walking on the earth? I was going to and fro and back and forth. Is that true? No, it's not true. He lied. He's lying to God. Did God know it was a lie? Yes, God knew it was a lie. How many angels knew it was a lie? How many angels did he convince? How many people in the church does he convince? Almost all of us. If not all, they it's all of us. If I ask that question in front of a group of people, when you, when Satan tells God, I want us walking back and forth and to and fro, what do you think? They go, yeah, that's what he was doing. No, that's not what he's doing. That's a lie. Okay? Satan does not tell the truth. Good, good grief. Is Job 1 through 7 an exception to him never telling the truth? No, it's not. Why would Satan be walking back and forth, going to and fro on the earth? God immediately asks Satan this question. Have you considered my servant Job? Does God know the answer to that question? Did God attach it to what's the Satan's answer? Absolutely he did. The question implies that Satan was searching for Job because God is omniscient. He knows why Satan is on the earth. He knows the exact reason Satan is on the earth. He knows the exact reason why everybody is gathered together on this particular day. He knows it all. He's God. He has no incompleteness like us human beings do. If Satan was on the earth prior to this, I'm sorry, he knows why Satan is on the earth. If Satan was on the earth, we're not even sure he's on the earth. He always lies. We can't be sure of anything. we got a witness that never tells the truth. Never. This is a level of narcissism that, that no one has ever noticed before. No one's ever been able to accomplish before. If Satan was on the earth prior to his court appearance, God knows why. And he asked that question. Have you considered my servant Job? You haven't been walking back and forth on the earth. You haven't been doing that. What you're doing is you're looking for Job. Have you considered Job? And this is a court appearance. You heard me right. This is an extraordinary, this extraordinary event is the convening of a judicial process. Who's on trial? That's a drum roll. Who's on trial? Who's the defendant here? What is the defense of the defendant? Well, that would be what we call the hedge defense. The defendant is acting as his own attorney. That's a good idea in this case. Why is it, why is Satan acting as his own attorney? Because nobody is better than Satan at this. He's filled to the brim with wisdom, filled to overflowing. The wisdom can't fit in the cup. It's going over the side. No angel can touch him. And so we have the hedge defense with the defense, the defendant acting as his own attorney and also acting as a prosecutor simultaneously. 
But in this case, no one, no, not any angel has the capability of Satan. So he's doing what he has to do. And that's why Jude 9 is the way it is for them. Here's Michael, the archangel, comes up against Satan and he goes, I got no chance here. God rebukes you, not me. I can't handle this. There's a great deal of humility for me, Michael, the archangel there. So the hedge defense, it sounds like a football game or basketball defense, zone defense, whatever, man-to-man. The hedge defense logically must be applicatory, applicatory to the Genesis 3-4 statement to the woman. Because what happens to the woman and what happens to Job is quite similar. How is that so? How does you will not surely die, Genesis 2.17, for God knows that in the what? What's the word? Come on. we can day. day. Here we go, right? You eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Okay? Open to what exactly? You know, now you're going to connect that to the hedge. Well, Satan tells us that that's going to happen. And of course, it, it was a lie. How many times we have to say it's a lie? We believed it so much. Yeah, everybody just thinks. Oh, the woman said, "Okay, it's not a lie." Yeah. But it is. She eventually figures it out and says, "He deceived me." And it goes back to the hedge thing. We believe that too. Yes, we do. We believe all kinds of things that he says, and it's ridiculous. But, but we do. I feel so stupid. Well, you know, we are stupid compared to him. Yeah. He, he, I've asked the question, how many of us have been deceived by Satan? And the answer is all of us. Mm-hmm. All of us. Yeah. Same for the angels, right? That's why Jude 9. Don't judge the angels harshly. That's right. At least you be judged. How is it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil? How is it being like God, this knowing good from evil? How is that being like God? Is Satan implying that God is the source of evil at Genesis 3-5? That's exactly what he's doing. That's what he means. You will know good from evil. Just like God knows good from evil. If God knows good from evil, then where did evil originate? What's he saying? Yeah. Who else in this world is out there doctrinally saying God is the author of evil? Again, who's your allies in this debate? You have to look around, see who's on your side, and go, oh, wait a minute. Yep. The woman did not become like God. We know that. The woman did not come become like God. Who became like God in that story? Genesis 3.22. Adam did. It says the man has become like one of us. It doesn't say the woman has become like one of us. So we have to evaluate that with respect to Job. Because again, it repeats it, Job. So how, how is this so? How, the woman did not become like, like God. The man did. How does that work? What's the difference between the two? With that aside, what is Satan inferring with this God knows that in the day? Plainly, Satan is attacking and he's lying again. Right? He's lying about the omniscience of God. He says God knows that in the day. If God knows that in the day, then he's saying knowing is what? Omniscience is what? Causation, that's what he's saying. Who else says omniscience is causation? 
God knows, God knows all things, John 21, 17, John 19, 28, Revelation 2, 23, but knowing omniscience is not causation because he has reconciled, he has got this fine-tuning between his omniscience and our free will. And so his knowing does not cause us to do anything. And, and you have to understand that. And it's very difficult for people to understand. I have great sympathy for you. You just go like this. I can't get to all of this stuff. Well, you can. It just takes time. Just for a minute, think about the scope of John 19.28. After this, Jesus, knowing all things, were now accomplished. That's what John says about Jesus. Because Jesus is God. Christ knows all things have been accomplished. So we have to define all things as it applies to the omniscient Lord God Almighty. The creator of all things, Colossians 1.15, Colossians 1.15, 1.16, Repeats three times, Jesus created all things. He created all things. He created all things. He created all things. How much is all things? How many things are there? How many stars are out there? Trillions and trillions of them. The Jim Webb Space Telegraph Telescope is just causing problems everywhere. It's fantastic. The rocks will cry out. It says that, right? We always assume that's the rocks on Earth. We always thought it was the fossil record. Well, guess what? It might be the rocks in the in the cosmology. They're crying out. They're saying, "Hey, you got this wrong, guys!" And they're in, they're hopping and skipping and jumping and doing all kinds of things trying to make this work. They're coming up with new, different theological or not theological theoretical concepts, trying to figure out how the how to reconcile the Jim Webb Space Telescope with what they believe. They're going to rewrite every single astronomy textbook at the rate we're going. They have to get rid of all of them. That is fantastic. Fantastic. You don't know what you don't know, but you don't care because you can make money pretending you know. That's how it works in everything, right? Jesus Christ created all things. Jesus Christ created all things. He created all things. Three times all things were made. John 1, 3 were made through Christ. There's a whole lot of all things in Scripture. Once again, as always, all things refer to everything. All things is all things. All means all. Colossians 1, 15, 18 invokes John 1, 3 through 5. John 19, 28. Revelation 2, 23. John 21, 17. Where Peter finally said, and I heard this guy talking about feed my sheep. And that's great. John 21, 17. But that's not the point. The point isn't feed my sheep. The point is how do you feed the sheep? And you feed the sheep by understanding that Christ knows all things. He's omnipotent God, omniscient God. When you say that to him, now you're now you know who he is, and now you can feed his sheep with that information. Anyway, I deviated there. I got to quickly interject John one four through six. In him was life. John eleven twenty five. I am the life and the resurrection. Do you believe me? In him is the life. All of this you know. But for today's lecture, John 1.5 is a direct correlative to Genesis 1.3. Let's read John 1.5 slowly because it goes right to Job 1. So here we go. John 1.5 slowly noticing the breadth of it, the extension of every word. And the light shines in the darkness. Now remember, Christ is the light of life, John 8, 12, Genesis 1, 3. 
and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. How about that? That's amazing. You should be getting goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps probably because I'm sick. But you should be getting goosebumps. The implications of comprehend is understand. So let me read it again. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand. The implication is, is the darkness is a what? Is it a condition? No, it's a person. The darkness couldn't figure it out. John 17, 21. See, as is the case with the evil thing, John 17, 21, and the lie, Second Thessalonians 2, 11, Romans 1, 25, I have a person being described here as the darkness. And the darkness did not understand the light. Who's the light? The light is a person. I just went over that 812 John, 1125 John. The light is a person. The darkness could not figure out the person. That is the light. Again, I submit that we begin with personhood here. The darkness is a person who did not and cannot figure out the shining light. The light of life. He can't do it. Now, calculate into the equation what exactly was the darkness not able to understand. I have the darkness. He can't understand something. What is it that he can't understand? And and yes, I am aware, and I should say this, that many Bibles substitute overcome in place of comprehend, and that's an error, that's an inaccuracy. Uh, the Greek word only occurs twice in Scripture where it's translated count, comprehend by the King James and attained by at Romans 9.30. So I, I think it absolutely is understand or comprehend. Obviously, I'm proposing that the darkness is who? Drum roll. Satan. Satan, the one who is filled to the overflowing, can't figure this out. How about those apples? God gave him something that he couldn't handle. And that is very difficult for Satan to reconcile because he thought he could handle everything and anything. And guess what? He can't. Something he can't do. John, 1 John 3, 8, The devil has sinned from the beginning, and for this purpose, for this reason, the sin from the beginning, the Son of God was manifested. And John, and Colossians 1, 15, Christ is the invisible that became seen. Ephesians 1, 11 identifies the purpose as Christ himself. So for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. And what, what's the purpose? The devil has sinned from the beginning, and God has a purpose now. Now, that's a bad way of saying it because it puts it inside of time, blah, blah, blah. It's heresy blasphemy. Quit doing it unless you're a professional. First John 3.8 is a different Greek word, but the principle is established. The purpose of God is the person of Jesus Christ and his singular purpose is to is to do this John 3 1 John 3 8 that he might destroy the works of the darkness or the works of the devil to rephrase the light of life has come to destroy the ruler of this darkness Ephesians 6:12 and this is his reason now, we have him coming to save, but that's part of the process of destroying the darkness, right? 
His purpose is to end the darkness and, of course, to save all who come, who believe. Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13. There we go again. Okay. Let me just, let me say this really. No, I'll save that for a second. Let me get some water. I'm hanging in there pretty good. I'm a little, little wobbly, though. I will be glad when this headache ends. Let's go ahead and return to John 1.5. The darkness, the prince, the ruler of darkness, could not comprehend the light. Duh. Which one's infinite? The light's infinite. The darkness is finite. He's a created being. The created being cannot understand the uncreated being. Yeah. Couldn't figure out what he's doing and why he's doing it and how he's doing it. Couldn't figure anything out. So I have, I, again, I have this full to the brim, overflowing with intelligence. Uh, Ezekiel 28:12 could not conceive, could not figure something out. What was it? You go ahead and answer. No, I, I don't have the answer, but I have a, a, question. a, a, a question. Uh, not really a question, but an observation uh, that I thought Jennifer brought up quite well. The darkness was over the surface of the deep. Yeah, Genesis 1:3. That's 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 a person. Same thing. That's a person. It's hovering, right? Yeah. Start looking at the I'm darkness right. as a person. Yeah. Now you got a shot. Thanks, so what's the thing that he can't figure out? This mystery is laid out in Psalm 10, which is why I keep raising Psalm 10, specifically Psalm 10, 6, 10, 13. Satan says, I shall never be in adversity. He can't figure anything. He's, you can't put me in adversity. But yeah, here comes adversity. How can this happen? He says to God, you will not require an account. Well, God is going to require an account. So how does that work? Satan can't figure it out. In other words, you, God, will never judge sin, Satan said. Why not? Why was Satan able to say that? Why does he think that's the case? It's a lie. Does he know it's a lie? Yes, it's a lie. He knows it's a lie. Why is he saying it? So add that in there. He's lying because he's got a problem. He can't figure out the light. The lie of Satan dictates that God decreed sin, predestined sin. The lie of Satan says that God predestined sin. He's the author of sin. He knew sin, evil from good from the beginning. He's the only one that knew it. And you're going to find out that he knew it. He says the opposite. He says, there's no sin in me. He says that everywhere in the Bible. There's not in Christ, of course, testifies there's no sin in Christ. And he's God. He's without blemish. But the lie of Satan dictates that God is the author of sin, he, that God predestined sin. Therefore, God is the founder of sin, and logically, evil is without will then. Because if God is the one that put evil into the world, then the evil occurs without will, except for the will of God. Our will is insignificant. It doesn't even exist. It annuls all judgment, therefore, right? And that's why he said you'll never require an account. Now, he knows that he's going to be held accountable. He can read the Bible. When the perfect comes, he knows now for sure, absolutely, that he's going to be held into account, and he knows why. He catches on really fast. Now we can revisit the question, what is the definition? What I mean by that, what is Satan's definition of the Job 1-9 hedge? He says you put a hedge around him. What's he mean? What does, that, what does it mean? Well, most people, and of course, Terithesi said this last week, or the last time we were together here, it's a protective system. It's a barrier, a protection. That doesn't 
it can't be true. Satan is the one that conceived the hedge. So what's his definition of the hedge? We don't want our definition. We don't even want God's definition. God probably has one, but we don't want it. It's Satan's hedge. You put a hedge around him. Well, what's a hedge? What do you mean by that? Perhaps you've noticed how much foundation material is necessary just to begin to define the hedge of Satan. Now we got, finally got here, page 12. The best place to begin to process this and to figure out what the hedge is in Satan's definition is to evaluate Job 1.8 where the Lord God Almighty says this, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? Full stop. God says there's none like Job, none on the earth, a blameless and upright man. Just think about that. Who else has God said that about? Does this statement from the mouth of the Lord God Almighty confirm, I'm sorry, conform with no free will predestination of individual salvation? Think about what I just said there for a second. There's none like him. He's upright. He shuns evil. Have you considered him? Because what's the debate about? Satan is saying there is no free will. And God says, have you looked at Job? Does Job have free will? He's a blameless, upright man that shuns evil. There's none like him. How did he get like that? Was he predestined to get like that? No. If he's predestined to be like that then he can't be described that way. If there's no free will, you can't describe Job in this manner. You can't say he's, he's, he's blameless and he's upright and he shuns evil if he doesn't have free will. You can't say it. But God says it. More on that later, huh? For today, why does God ask this of Satan? Have you considered Job? Have you considered what Job is implying by his life? God knows that Satan has, duh, has considered Job. What is Satan considering about Job? Now, many will assume the majority of commentators propose that Satan is forming his strategy to attack Job, but I think this line of reasoning is flawed. It's too simple. Stop being simple. He says to God, if, if, I, if you take everything away from Job, he'll curse you to your face. Is that true? God doesn't think it's true. And remember again, Satan lies about the existence of the hedge. Obviously, he attacked Eve. Did she have a hedge? No. So he knows there's no hedge. He, he likely attacked Adam as well prior to Eve. Seems logical. And there's a connection between Adam and Job, so I would expect similarity here. I, I can extrapolate it at least argumentatively. But obviously, the woman did not have any protective hedge around her, did she? Nor did Adam have any protective hedge around him. So why does Satan say, you put a hedge around Job, that's why he's this way. Now he said that to the entire angelic head host. How many of them believed him? Probably, yeah, just like us. And again, he lies about the existence of the hedge. Always keep that in mind. And Job 1 is an example of spinning plates on sticks. Expect that God's answer is going to be astonishingly complex. How complex? Is, how complicated is God's question to Satan? Uh, never ask that question. 
I, I just ask it because I'm the HTRP. But don't you ever do that. How complex is God's question to you? Certainly never choose the simple. If you think you understand what God is thinking, remember Satan did not comprehend the light. The person of Christ. This is the hypostatic union, the mystery of godliness. Satan cannot comprehend the light. The darkness can't figure out the mystery of godliness. Doesn't know how he's doing it. Doesn't know how he's doing anything. He can't figure out how he can reconcile free will and omniscience. He can't figure anything out. Satan is the most brilliant created being that has ever existed and he cannot comprehend the light. So what are our chances of getting any of this right? We have to come in with humility, right? And just believe him. Anyway, God elaborates. Why would God elaborate? He calls him a blameless and upright man. So he goes on, there's none like him. Now I'm going to give you more information. He's blameless and upright. Shuns evil. None like him. Job is innocent. He's a man that has unimpeachable standing. Thank you. And Satan is saying that's because I say it's because of a hedge that doesn't exist. Obvious questions. Job is is being he's part of this judicial system. He doesn't even know it, right? He's going to be the one that gets gets the brunt of this. So what is what is Job innocent of? He's innocent of something. He's blameless. He's innocent. He's upright. What What are we talking about? Is it a general thing? Or is there a specific thing? Is, there an, is he innocent of a specific charge? What is the darkness, the accuser, Revelation 12.10, intending to prosecute this innocent man of impeccable standing? What is he going to charge him with? He's going to accuse him. Note the innocent aspect, Luke 23.4, where another trial, a judicial event occurs. The judge, the prosecutor, declares Christ to be what? Innocent. So here we go. Faultless. Luke 23.14, Pilate says to the priests, the rulers and the crowd of the people, I found no fault in this man considering the things that you, which you accuse him. You accused him. It's not true. None of it's true. So what is Satan accusing Job of? For today, know that both Job and Christ faced a trial, and the death penalty at the end of, it was the end result for Christ. Now again, Christ you can't you can't take his life; he has to take it himself. And Job is spared. Job one twelve. Why did God instruct Satan to spare the life of Job? Because he does. He has the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. Satan had the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans. And the fire of God as well execute the servants of Job. So a bunch of servants died. He brought an army of evil people and they killed the Job's servants. Only three escaped, Job 1, 13 through 17. A great wind, a tornado, some people think, kills the young people, the children of Job. Then we have this fire of God that came. How did it come? The commentators always assume the fire of God is lightning. Again, what's wrong with that idea? It's too simple. God didn't do it. So where did the fire come from? Who set the fire? Huh? The point for today, yea, a point for today, is that Satan is allowed to attack, but he cannot kill. Why can't he kill? He can't. He has to have proxies. He requires, he, he has to enable others to kill for him. He can't kill himself. Kill other, he can't kill a Christian for sure. He has to have, uh, he has to have somebody in his employ, if you want to think of it that way.
That's a very important restriction. And does this explain John 13.27 and Genesis 3.15? You have to look it up. John 13.27 is Satan has entered Judas. Genesis 3.15, Satan is on trial. Why is Satan unable to kill a human being by himself? Why does he have to have help, if you want to think of it that way? He has to have accomplices. Who started the fire? Did God start the fire and send the fire? They call it the fire of God. Did he start the fire? Obviously, the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans, they acted as the agents of Satan. Okay, where am I now? Where is one? Job is innocent, yet he is on trial. Christ is the ultimate sinless, innocent person who is also on trial. Satan and Judas were involved in the operation, and Judas hangs himself. Another ridiculously entangled little piece of information. Why does Judas do that? Makes no sense on the face. God continues. Job is also one who fears God and shuns and turns away from evil. So he gives you all this information about Job. Is there a specific evil that Job is shunning? Or is it just general evil? Is this the first time that Satan attacks Job? Why would we assume this is the first time? How many times did he attack the woman and the man? Satan had found Job. This is obvious by what Satan asks of God. Satan asks God a question in answer to a question. Does does Job fear God for nothing, he said. What does that mean? Again, remember, who is listening to Satan saying these things? The entire angelic gathered host. He's saying that God had blessed Job beyond a limit. You have overblessed Job. You've put a there's a you've got exceeded the limit. And if you have exceeded the limit, then guess what that means? Satan declared uh, declares to be consistent. He's in other words, you are not consistent, God. You have put Job. You have blessed Job beyond a limit that is consistent with your position. You have a position, God. What is your What is God's position here? So we've evaluated Satan's position. The Satan's position is that there is no accountability for me because you're the author of evil. And then he says, you have put too much, you have blessed Job beyond a limit. That means that you have, you're the author of evil. Do you understand how I made that leap? Yeah. So we have to define what the limit is. There's a limit. Yeah, according to whom? So we we have this very complicated conversation going back and forth. The limit is not the hedge, in case any of you have headed that direction. Those are different. Satan lies about the hedge. There is no hedge, Job 1.12. And the Lord says to Satan, Job 1.12, Behold, there is no hedge. You can just read it that way. Behold, this is... I've got to jump up and down. I might fall. Behold, there is no hedge. I have paraphrased that a bit, but the actual verse is, Behold, all that he, Job, has is in your power, Satan. That's what he says. There's no hedge, baby. Do your thing. With one exception, the life of Job cannot be taken. we got to know why. Now, we know at the end of the story, everybody's resurrected. The servants, the animals, the children, they're all resurrected. Last chapter of Job. Well, you can't 
kill Job because Job is the witness. A good, well done, counselor. We need Job alive, don't we? Yeah. Yes, we do. Well, God could resurrect him. But he won't do it that way. He says, he doesn't say, go ahead and kill him, I'll just resurrect him. Kill him again, I'll resurrect him again. Kill him again, I'll, resu- I'll just keep resurrecting him. What would he call What would he call that? What would Satan call that if that happened? Predestination. Yes, predestination, exactly. And so, so we have to have a live witness. You're absolutely right. Very well done. I can probably shut it down now. I'm very loved. Actually, I got really cool stuff coming here. Oh, good, cool. And says uh, the life of Job cannot be touched. Just why not? We got to get into that deeper than we already have. But Terry is on the right track. So Satan went out. It says Satan went out. Wow, that's amazing. Satan went out knowing that God will allow him, Acts 14, 16, because God allows him to carry out, to put his hypothesis, Satan's hedge hypothesis to the test. Note the irony. I got it. Note the irony there. Satan exercises his free will in order to prove there's no free will. That was, I, I wasn't telling you how much time. Oh, you weren't telling me how much time? You. Oh, you no, want? I can't remember what I wanted to ask. Okay. Well, let me repeat this again. There's this ironic thing here that exerc- Satan is given permission to exercise Satan's free will, trying to prove that there is no free will. <laughs> yeah. It's hilarious. I know. Yeah. Notice this. So Satan went out. Where was Satan then? He went out from somewhere. Where is he now? Where exactly in heaven was he? And Satan must have been in some place in order to go out of it. So where was he? Where do you suppose God and Satan were talking to each other? What spot? It's not arbitrary. They're not just sitting on a cloud and playing harps. There's a place. What place was he in? And again, notice the behold. Behold. Something of great theological importance is being revealed there. Whatever we decide, it's got to rise up to that behold. Behold, God is allowing Satan to prove or disprove this hedge position. Satan comes with a lie, and God says, I see your lie. Go do it. What are the implications of that? Did Satan expect that God would call his bluff? Probably. Satan is a brilliant creature. What were the faithful? But again, it's not about Satan, and it's not about God. That's all been resolved. What it's about is how many angels can I move? How is it that he's capable? He's acting as if he can convince angels to come to his side. What does that require? Free will. Why do I do this if there's no free will? It'd be futile. But he obviously doesn't believe that, does he? Does that ever sink into anybody? I'm confident it does. He says, Behold, all that he has is in your power. So what do the fallen angels think when they hear that? Who in this assembly believed that God might revoke Job's salvation? Obviously, an element of the hedge hypothesis is the revocation of salvation. To repeat, let me put it this way. There's two questions. Does God revoke salvation? Yes or no? No. 
Can Job forfeit his salvation? No. How do we reconcile those and feather them together? That's the challenge. We know they feather. To repeat, why is the life of Job held in abeyance? Why this one condition, this limit here? We, God puts a limit. He says you can't kill him. What are we, what's going on? Approach from the reciprocal. And that's what Terry did. What, what if Satan had the authority to execute and he did execute Job? What would happen then? That's how you evaluate whether or not why he's not able to do it. Some of you are ahead of the adorable HTRP and you've gone, and you've gone to John 5.20 and John 10.17 through 18. The latter being, therefore the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I can resurrect myself. John 11.25 No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. That's my, my little hypothesis that I gave you with regard to killing Job. God could just resurrect him. He could do this all day long. You kill him, I pull him back up. Pretty soon Job just says, okay. Yeah. Can we take a lunch? Satan does not have that power. Why not? Somehow that testifies of something. What does it testify of? Free will. Because it all centers around the same thing. Why does Satan leave after God says this to him? The answer to that begins with Matthew 4, Luke 4, John 13, 27 through 30, where Christ tells him to leave there. Leave. Satan has to leave when Christ says leave. So we got, we got, we got all these places where, where Satan leaves. Revelation 12, probably the best starting point. The point being, yea, a point that God can throw Satan around like a rag doll. But he doesn't. He doesn't do it until Revelation 20, 10. Revelation 20.10 connects to Revelation 22-3. To wrap this up for today, and again, I just introduced it. I didn't do well with regard to completing anything. I got reams of stuff ready to go already. I stapled all together. Don't forget to put all of this material into the next lecture. So, Job 1, Job 2, all that I've covered today orbits the issue of free will and the lie that God predestined salvation and therefore God decrees evil. All of that is incorporated in that particular issue. Our, in other words, the hedge is the predestination of individual salvation. And we'll have to figure that out. The limit likewise is connected. It, it, it intermeshes into all of this. So also is this revocation of salvation. We have to deal with that. Why doesn't God revoke salvation? Does it because he doesn't? Uh, we have Satan's restriction with respect to killing Job. We've got to figure out how that fits in here. Can't leave out why this was all allowed in the first place. Why we even had this big meeting. Had to have the meeting. Why? No, no, no humans are there. It's all about the angels. Got to have it. The convening of a judicial procedure that, that, that only impacts the angelic realm. Satan confronts God. This angelic realm is present and Satan confronts God. Just imagine that. He accuses God of lying. Just what he, the same thing he did in Genesis 3-4. What exactly does God that Satan I'm sorry, what exactly then does Satan accuse God of? We have to nail that down. In other words, we are confronted with the lie of Satan. In the lie of Satan is this accusation that God is a liar. 
So Satan says there is a lie of God. Could you articulate for me what Satan's lie entails? What is he what is he accusing God of lying about? We should attempt to define and collate and assimilate all that we can this this position, this supposed lie that Satan says exists. Because he accuses God of lying twice. Here at Job and at Genesis 3-4. You're lying. He does it in front of audiences. We have to pin down the entirety of the accusation of Satan. And so we shall attempt to do so next time we come at this. Hopefully I make it.